Bill Jehoda, who was a big government informant before, after he was a mobster, took down the Iraqi and Police Street crew. And, and years ago, he said when someone referred to him as a rat, mm -hmm. that he hated that term, that he wasn't, he wasn't a rat. That same term is going to be and has been applied to you. How do you deal with it? Well, we like to label people. And the two choices I had was stone-blooded, cold-blooded killer or rat. Okay, you know, I mean, I can't justify it. I can't defend it. It is what it is. All I can do is take the people close to me and the people that love me and see the kind of person I am since I came home from prison. And you make your decision, the people that know me. Hello all, Kaylee here. That was Frank Calabrese Jr. in an interview he gave to Chicago Tonight. Now that happened about the time of the release of his book, Operation Family Secrets. And this is It's All Relative, the show where we dissect crime in the family. This is a three-part series about the Calabrese mob family out of Chicago. All of the previous words should clue you in to what kind of a show this is, true crime. And if you don't like raw topics, leave now. If you haven't heard the previous two episodes, go back and start there. This show is a product of me and me alone, so if you feel offended enough by anything I say, you are sucking wind if you think you can sue me for anything quantitative. As usual, I like to start things off with a little music, so here's some David Bowie to set the mood. Still don't know what I was waiting for, and my time was running wild a million dead end streets and Every time I thought I got it made, it seemed the taste was not so sweet. So I turned myself to face me, but I've never caught a glimpse of how the others must see the faker. I'm much too fast to take that test. Ch-ch-ch-ch-change it. Turn and face the strain. Ch-ch-change it. All right, the clip at the opening of this episode, where Frank Calabrese Jr. is speaking, is the one I think is the most real of all the times I have heard Frank Jr. talk about becoming a stoolie. I made the comment at the beginning of this series that I felt that Frank Jr. had a touch of Blarney in him. So believing everything he has said about his story, I do feel we should take it with a grain of salt. But this particular interview with ABC7, if you go online and watch him, there's real emotion there. And on a tangential note, I really have a problem with how many reporters and interviewers keep making a point of pushing this concept of Frank Jr. being a quote-unquote rat. Son shops father. Son wears wire on his own father. God, it's vulgar. Look, I know they have a point, but all the headlines and big questions are about the rat, not about the hideous things his father did made his own brother do and tried to get his own son to do. And don't try to talk to me about not being acceptable to turn on your own family. Frank Sr. is the one who turned on his own family. He did it first and he did it the longest. But let me read you something from Frank Jr.'s book. Okay, so let me set this up. I'm going to quote from 
Frank Jr.'s book, Operation Family Secrets. And at this point, Frank Jr. has been married to Lisa for a little while. Things are kind of getting a little bit dicey in the world of organized crime. Frank Sr. is a little getting worried about possibly having to go to jail. And who is going to roll over doesn't matter, but just listen, there's a point to this, okay? And I quote, nervous about Russo rolling over, my father approached Ed on the premise that he was still working on finding his son's assailants. What should he do if the feds launched a RICO case against him? Uncle Ed's response wasn't exactly what my father wanted to hear. Since there were no murders involved, his best bet was to take off and go into hiding for seven years until the statute of limitations expired. The crew explored ideas of making my father disappear, including staging a fake assassination. My father would drive south and set up base camp down in Florida, where he already owned a warehouse and a winter home. Inside the warehouse were modest living quarters with a shower, a cot, and some clothing. Rather than elaborately stage his death, he decided he would secretly escape. The timing couldn't have been worse for me. Lisa was due to give birth any day. Now my dad, whom I had been avoiding for weeks since I walked away from the M&R debacle, again, doesn't matter, was demanding that I drive him down to Florida to help him get settled. We would drive up the Florida coast where I would grab a plane back to Chicago, but probably not in time for the baby's birth. At first, I protested. Lisa is going to have our baby any day now. You mean you're not going to do this for your father? My father asked incredulously. You have to do this for me. What's more important than your dad? Lisa wasn't pleased when she heard the news. I winced as I lied to my mother when she asked about my plans for the baby's arrival. End quote. What is more important than your own father? Well, what about becoming one yourself? What about your son and your wife? What about Frank Sr. as a grandfather? No. To Frankie Breeze, it was all about Frankie Breeze. Frank Sr. was the rat. And when he met the woman he'd marry, his father forced her to sign a blank prenup. Just one indication of his iron fist. I was intimidated, you know, but after I met him, I'm like, he seems nice, you know, and that, that's the sociopath part of it, you know, he seems real nice, and then once you're in the family and, you know, you see what he does to the family and that umbrella effect, how he, you know, what he does uh, affects everybody. That clip was from ABC News a piece called Born into the Mob. Okay, my soapbox has been put away for now. So Frank Jr. has done the only thing he could think of to get away from his father. He contacts the FBI using the prison typewriter. The FBI is not sure what to make of Jr.'s letter. They're interested enough to consider talking with him, but they aren't sure what he can really give them, especially since there's a strong likelihood Jr. is just looking to get his sentence shortened. Although the feds do check with the prison to see what kind of a prisoner Frank Calabrese Jr. has been and find out he's been not only a model prisoner, he's well-liked by almost everybody there, law enforcement and prisoner alike. Most of the time, the guys who contact the FBI are those who are doing hard time or not doing well in prison. But Frank Jr. is not one of those guys. So they're curious, but not in a hurry. It takes them months to find a hole in their schedule where they can make a trip to Milan, Michigan. And I'm deciding what I'm gonna do, what am I gonna do, what am I gonna do? Do I wait till we get home? My dad's gonna kill me when we get home on the street. So what's my other option? Now, the only thing I could come up with was the worst thing you could do in my neighborhood, be a snitch, be a rat. 
but I'm not having a problem doing my time. That's usually for guys that can't do their time. He says, you know what? I got an idea. So I went to the prison library. I says, I am going to work out a business deal with the government. So I got on the, on the library typewriter with winter gloves on for no fingerprints. I typed it for no handwriting. I didn't write nothing personal in there. And after eight months of being with my dad trying to work it out, I sent this letter to the FBI. In the letter, it said, look, nobody can know that I'm talking to you, especially not my lawyer, because the lawyer was all mobbed up. I feel like I have to help you keep this sick man locked up forever. On no recording devices, just come out with pen and paper. And when they came out, we sat down and um, I started working with them. That was from a video that the Mob Museum plays. It's called An Interview with Family Secrets Witness Frank Calabrese Jr. Again, from the book Family Secrets. The quote starts now. Due to legal and safety concerns, it was five months before Agent Thomas Bourgeois arranged a visit to meet with me at FCI Milan. He came alone in the early winter of 1998. Bourgeois seemed confused and wanted to know what I wanted. I'm sure Bourgeois also wondered the same thing I had. What kind of son puts his father away for life? Maybe he thought I was lying. Perhaps I had gotten into an argument and, like most cons, was looking to get my sentence reduced. Yet, in our ensuing conversation, I told Tom that I wasn't asking for much in return. I just didn't want to lose any of my time served and I wanted to transfer out of FCI Milan once my mission was accomplished. When asked by Bourgeois if I would wear a wire out on the prison yard, I promptly replied no. I would work with the FBI, but I would only give them intelligence, useful information they could use, and with the understanding that nobody would know I was cooperating, and I would not testify in open court. Outfit guys like my dad called that dry beefing. Frank Calabrese Sr. was one of the outfit's most cunning criminals and had been a successful crew chief and solid earner for the Chicago mob for 30 years. He could smell an FBI informant a mile away. If he hadn't talked about his criminal life in the past, why would he do so now? After Agent Bourgeois' first interview with me at Milan, he reported back to Mitch Mars, an assistant U.S. attorney and chief of the Chicago Organized Crime Section. Mars wanted to know if there was enough to present a case to a grand jury and gather a bigger, more inclusive case against the outfit. As I lay in my cell bunk, I thought about my refusal to wear a wire. Suppose I gave the feds information, but my father got lucky and walked. I'd be screwed. Uncle Nick would be stuck on death row, and after my dad's sentence ran out, he would bounce right back on the streets to continue his juice loan business and murderous ways. I would be incriminating myself, and I didn't want an immunity deal. If I needed to do more time to keep my dad locked up forever, so be it. After I sent the letter, I was determined to finish what I started. I contacted Agent Bourgeois one more time to tell him I had changed my mind. I would wear the wire after all. All the deception my father had taught me, I was now going to use on him. My father's own words would become his worst enemy. The Mile End Prison Yard recordings took place between February 14th and June 1st, 1999. There were eight extraordinary sessions, one every 10 days or so. I had no control over the recorder. They turned it on when I left the when I left the SIS office and turned it off when I returned. That was because in prior federal cases, guys turned the recorder on and off whenever they chose. The original tapes were valuable in court only if they were unedited." End quote. Other than the immediate danger of being found out wearing a wire on the prison yard, which was extremely dangerous, not only could his father snap and kill him, but any of the other guys in the prison yard 
who saw him with a wire could possibly snap and kill him because he would be seen as a snitch because they might be afraid of what what he has on the recording. In addition to that, one other thing happened. Um, another thing happened in that they couldn't send him onto the yard with a live mic. In other words, the FBI agents could not hear what was going on. They had sent him out with wire on into the prison and the FBI agents would just sit in a room for hours waiting him for him to come back. And um, one day this happened. Also from the Family Secrets book. When I returned to the SAS office to remove the wire, I remarked to Hartnett how difficult it was to get my dad to talk, but I felt we'd scored some hard-hitting information. A few days later, I received the bad news. A technical glitch in the prototype digital recorder had rendered our first conversation unintelligible. The malfunction sowed doubt and disappointment. Had I done the right thing risking my life in the first place? Were these guys competent? How was I going to get my father to talk about the same stuff again? The FBI agents were distressed that their equipment had malfunctioned. In the future, the agents made sure I had two devices rolling, using one as backup. For one session, the backup was an old-fashioned analog recorder that required me to be wired up like a Christmas tree and plastered with white tape on my chest. The recording device was fastened between my legs, old-school style, and burned my testicles as I stood out in the yard. The hardest part of the mission was getting back to my cell before correctional officers conducted the final count. Immediately after taping, I would leave the SIS office and scurry through a long hallway to re-enter the main prison yard. If anyone spotted me coming from the SIS office out in the yard, the rumor would spread that I was an informant. After six months of nerve-wracking intensity, my prison yard chats were starting to suck the life out of me. By June 1999, it was apparent that the two mics, those were the feds who he was dealing with the most, that the mission was becoming too dangerous for me to continue. It was time to get me out of my own. Six months of wearing the wire had drained me down. I was beaten. I needed rest. After my release from prison, if I was agreeable, I could return to visit my dad under more controlled and less dangerous circumstances. End quote. Now, during all these conversations in prison, Frank Sr. talked about a lot of murders, all of which basically he was indicted for when the family secrets trial went to court. One of the murders he discussed was the John Fegarata murder in which Nick was actually involved. If you remember back to the previous episode of It's All Relative, we talked about this bit of foreshadowing in which Nick was shot in the arm and he dropped a bloody glove. Unfortunately, in order to lock his father away, Frank Jr. had to let those tapes go to the feds. And he knew that it was going to get his uncle in trouble. The following is also from the video played at the Mob Museum, and it discusses Frank Jr.'s process in coming to terms with all of this. Growing up with my Uncle Nick, he was like an older brother to me. We were very close. He was very close with me and my brother. The hardest part I ever had to do in life was implicate my uncle in this one murder. Now, my uncle was to the point where he had enough of my dad with my dad. I do believe that my uncle at some point was ready to testify against my dad. Uh, that being said, that was his decision. Okay, that would be his decision in the long run. But for me, um, the hardest thing I ever had to do was implicate my uncle because in order to get my father 
I, I had to tell about the the uh, bloody glove and the gun that I retrieved and all that. So I, I by implicating me, I had to implicate my uncle, and, and by doing that, I was able to implicate my dad in all this. So my relationship with my uncle now is, you know, he knows that had this not happened and we got out on the street, we would have either been killed by who was left in the mob or we would have been in some kind of... Uh, some kind of altercation with my dad. So he understood what I did. Um, he, not, he did not think that he was going to, I mean, he actually, as a cooperating witness, got the most time ever for what he did. Normally, cooperating witnesses at his level would, you know, once the case was over, they'd be let out, guys like Sammy the Bull and all that. Um, we work on our relationship. Me and my uncle have talked, and we're still working on that relationship. I mean, it's just, it, it, every, all this ripped our family apart. So yeah, it was, that was the hardest thing I ever did. I mean, my uncle never did nothing to me. He actually saved my life. In the murder that I implicated him, I was supposed to be part of that. That was kind of like making my bones. And I was ready. This man had done stuff to our family, even though he was a friend at one time. My uncle stopped it because he didn't want me to cross this line with my dad and the mob. He's seen the way we're changes. So he did it alone. And that's how he wound up shooting himself in the struggle. Okay, and that's how that all happened. Had I been in that car with him, none of that would have happened. So not only did he save me from crossing that line, there was a huge turning point in my life, but then I also implicated in him, him in it. So that was very hard. And um, yeah, and, and I'm not making an excuse for it. It's what I had to do. And it's what I did. I, I think, um, you know, my uncle's got a second chance at life. Now, Frank Sr. has visitors in the prison. He gets visits from two police officers who are on mob payroll. He gets visits from some of his guys. And he finds out that this information about his business and about the mob has been leaked somewhere and he suspects that it's Nick who's doing it. Again, from the book Family Secrets, I quote, My father was hostile toward my uncle because Nick badmouthed him prior to their reporting to prison and arranged to use a different criminal law firm. That Nick aired dirty laundry to someone outside the family angered my father. Uncle Nick and I had spoken prior to my being locked up. He admitted he was tired of the life and had been for a long time. Being a gangster had lost its luster, and he wasn't getting rich working on his brother's crew. On the March 27th tape, I discussed my uncle again. We mentioned Nick's stupidity for signing Fecarada's gambling winnings form. To gain my father's trust, I pretended to side with him against my uncle. End quote. So when the feds heard about this, they sent someone down to the courthouse, to the property room, and had them dig out that glove. At this point, they know they've got Nick by the short and curlies, and they go to him to try to broker some sort of a deal to get him to flip on his brother and to flip on the mob. This is what the feds had to say about why Nick flipped. With the information they'd gotten from Frank Jr., the FBI prepared to hook an even bigger fish, his uncle Nick. In January 2000, Agent Tom Bourgeois and his team paid a visit to Nick Calabrese at the federal prison in Pekin, Illinois. We told him we had a warrant to get his DNA and 
to x-ray his left arm because that's where he shot himself when he killed John Fecorata. Nick was stunned. He had no doubt that his DNA would match and that his missing gloves from the crime scene would sew up the case. He realizes that he's on the hook for this murder and maybe more. He really reaches the end of the line for himself and the end of his outfit life and decides that he's going to turn on his brother. The choice would make Nick Calabrese the first made man from the outfit ever to flip. No made man in the Chicago underworld going all the way back to the days of Al Capone had ever turned. It was an intense meeting. You have an individual who is going to cooperate against his brother and against an organization that he has spent his entire life protecting. But once Nick Calabrese turned, he was all in. He talked about murder after murder after murder. That was from that A&E episode of Mobsters, uh, season four, episode two. And to be fair, that may have been part of the equation, and it probably was. But according to Frank Jr., the biggest issue was not that he was caught. It was what Frank Sr. did when he just suspected that Nick was who was blabbing his mouth. The following's from the Mob Museum video again. I have to incriminate the smartest guy I know on the street, my dad. So what do I use? I use what he taught me. Knowing your enemy's strength and weaknesses. Anger and liquor get people to talk. Pit one person against another. I pit my dad and my uncle against one another. My uncle was bad-mouthing my dad on the street for not sticking up for my younger brother, Kurt, who was innocent in this case. I got my dad so mad on these tapes, I got my uncle, that not only did he open up and talk about all this stuff, he actually gave his blessing to have my uncle killed in another prison. Neither Frank Jr. nor Nick knows the other is cooperating. And this is not discovered until the trial, which takes place several years later. This is another quote from Family Secrets. Originally, Uncle Nick suspected that the FBI's sudden flood of information came from Jimmy DeForti, and not from me. Since the FBI couldn't play, and never played, any of my mile in prison yard tapes to my uncle, he was in the darkest of my role in the case. But after Nick figured out it was me, he apparently wasn't angry, and said, I should have known. I knew what he grew up with. I grew up with the same guy, so I understand what he had to do. End quote. So the trial eventually starts, and it's huge. Now, Nick only asked to be treated fairly in all of this. Again, from Family Secrets, and I quote, Uncle Nick cooperated in January 2002, and after completing his racketeering sentence in November 2002, he remained in custody, working with Mike Maseth and the other FBI agents. As he testified, I let fear control my life. And beneath that fear was a coward who didn't walk away from that life. My uncle was sentenced to 12 years and four months for his part in the 14 family secrets murders he committed with my father. His sentence came out to less than one year per killing. In explaining the logic behind his sentencing, Judge Zagel stated that unlike defendants Joe Lombardo and my father, Nick showed remorse and shame for his crimes. Zagel noted that Nick had committed 14 grisly murders and that the sentence was bound to resonate negatively with the general public, and more so with the victim's family members and survivors. Charlene Moravechik looked over at my uncle and pronounced, He's the devil. She left the sentencing in tears and fainted outside the courtroom. Tony Ortiz was crushed that Zagel didn't give Nick more time. 
He wasn't buying my uncle's professions of remorse. He shot my dad in the head with a shotgun nine times, Ortiz later told the press. Did he once apologize to any of the families? No, he did not. But Zago, ordinarily viewed as a law and order judge, explained that without revealing first-hand testimony from criminals like my uncle, how could families in the future gain closure by seeking their loved one's killers brought to justice? Zagel reminded the court that Nick, once released, would forever be looking over his shoulder, and he reminded Nick that the outfit will not forgive or relent in their pursuit of you. End quote. As for Frank Jr., testifying against his dad was torture. While his father smirked and whispered death threats under his breath, uh, the DA actually had protection starting mid-trial due to this, Junior's heart is breaking. It is the last time he sees his father alive. In 2012, Frank Sr. dies in prison on his favorite day, Christmas. I quote a CBS News article by CrimeSider on December 27th. Frank Calabrese Jr. told the Sun-Times on Wednesday that their violent history made his father's death especially emotional. I believe he was taken on Christmas Day for a reason, he said. I hope he made peace. I hope he's up above looking down on us. He's not suffering anymore, and the people on the street aren't suffering anymore. End quote. This is what Nick Jr. says about this is what Nick Jr. says about a life of crime and how it affects your family. And the quote is from Kings and Clowns, an interview with Frank Calabrese Jr. Part two. I watched a lot of people that I didn't think would come back while I was while I was in prison. I seen them come back. And it was one of the saddest things I ever seen because I, it's just such a waste of life in prison. You know, especially for federal prison. If you're if you're a street guy and you go to prison, it's like being on the street. So you can get very comfortable very fast. But it's just such a waste of life. And you know who suffers? Not us. The people on the outside that love you, they're the ones that suffer. Yeah. You know, and to watch these people stand by these guys' side and watch some of these guys come back for some some of the pettiest shit. It just it it it, it shocked me. Nick is out of prison and in witness protection. Frank Jr. is working on a second book, and there is a movie in the works. He has refused to live his life in hiding. This is a fact which will come into play, even if in a minor way, with our next case. That's the end of That's All Relative for now, folks. Here's Gloria Gaynor to send you on your way.